You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Keep your Bible open to Genesis 22. We're going to walk through this story in some detail, in fact, because uh, the beauty is in the details. This is a famous story. Uh, in Jewish and Christian traditions alike, this is held up as perhaps the most important story in all of the Old Testament. In the realm of literature, Genesis 22 is seen as one of the high points of ancient narrative. I've been studying this story for weeks now, and, and I can tell you it is entirely absorbing. Which is why for centuries, people have been debating and talking about the, the many levels of meaning within this text. We're going to figure it out in 30 minutes. Uh, this, this final test in Abraham's life is to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And the language is strong. You heard it read. He is to slaughter his son. And for that reason, this text has also been the subject of a lot of controversy and contempt. Uh, Immanuel Kant, 18th century German philosopher, said that this text exemplifies the irrationality of biblical faith. He says that in Abraham, he becomes the prototype of every madman who thinks he's heard from God. I I grew up in the age of of David Koresh, who was a madman who thought he had heard from God, and his hearing from God led to the slaughter of a whole, a, a suicide of the whole community of people. And we've seen lots of examples of madmen who think they have heard from God. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who is influenced by Kant, uh, he makes sense of this story. He, he looks at it kind of from the perspective of ethics. That's what he does. He's a philosopher. And he makes sense of it by saying that uh, essentially there is a temporary suspension of ethics, that God in this story has placed himself above or outside of moral norms. In our day, uh, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist thinker, author of the book God Delusion, uh, says that this text uh, is a classic example of theistic child abuse. Dawkins says in his book that he thinks the God of the Old Testament is arguably the, um, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. And you see what he's asserting? That we're reading fiction. And I want to suggest that if we're reading fiction, Dawkins is right. This is an awful story if it's just fiction. But if it's true, if Genesis 22 really happened, if what we're looking at is the inspired word of God, if the Bible really has authority in our lives, if it really unfolds the history of redemption, then this story holds the key to our understanding of the magnitude of God's love and to the glory of our salvation. That said, even if you come to this text as a Christian, one who believes you're looking at the Word of God, it is still a difficult text because there are some apparent contradictions. Right? There's a moral contradiction because if God somehow is commanding child sacrifice, then it's directly opposed to his clear commands in Exodus and Leviticus against child sacrifice. So is God suspending himself above moral norms? There's a theological contradiction as well. We've seen throughout the story of Abraham that 
God has promised Abraham that through his seed, he will bless the nations. And Isaac is literally his seed. The promise goes through his son Isaac, his only son. And so theologically speaking, if the son of promise is to be put to death, how could God come through on his promise? If you're new to the Bible, or if you're still trying to understand what, what the Christian faith is all about, even though this is a difficult text, this is a great place for you to be today. Because the heart of this story is about the nature of Christian or biblical faith. And here it is in a nutshell. The key phrase throughout this text, which we're going to see, is this phrase, the Lord will provide. God will provide. And that, I think, in a nutshell, is the essence of biblical faith. To be able to say from the bottom of your gut with everything you've got, God will provide. We're going to develop that in kind of three phases of the story. First, the test, then the journey, and then the altar. But it begins with the test. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Okay, so again, is God commanding child sacrifice? Is faith just doing the irrational? Is Abraham a madman? I mean, we've got to answer some of these questions before we get in too deep into the text. And here at the beginning, the the narrator, the author, so let me give you some context for this. This story really happened to Abraham. Uh, Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible for Israel. And as the narrator, as the one writing the story, he gives us little commentary. He gives us some cues some hints, as it were. And he gives us some hints in these first verses. Look at the very first words, after these things, which just means this is the next big event in Abraham's life. God tested Abraham. God is the protagonist. You're going to see throughout the story that God initiates and drives all the action. Everything that happens, that people do, is just in response to God. The story is often said to be about the faith of Abraham. And it is that. But to understand Abraham's faith, we've got to see that God is the primary character in the story. Moses is telling us God's up to something here. What is he up to? Well, he's testing Abraham. And testing is different than tempting. Right? We know from James that God doesn't tempt anyone, lest when they sin they would say, oh, well, God, God made me do it. God doesn't do that. But he does test people and testing is different. He's not tempting Abraham to sin. Abraham doesn't want to do this. It's a test. A test simply reveals what's in you. And throughout the scriptures, you see God testing his people. Uh, Israel was tested through, with hunger, with thirst, as they're wandering through the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy, it says why they were tested. They were tested to discover what was in your heart, whether you would keep his command or not. A little later in Deuteronomy 8, it says this test was to humble you, but to do you good in the end. And so when God tests his people, it's difficult, 
It exposes them, but it's to do them good in the end. So at the outset, Moses is telling us that God is up to something. It's a test. It's going to be hard for Abraham, but it's going to do him good in the end. Here's another hint, verse 2. God says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Four levels of specificity. There's no mistake. Take your son, your only son. That's right. Isaac, mm-hmm, the one you love. Why does God go through all this specificity? We've seen Abraham try to wiggle his way out of things before. Maybe he's just saying, look, I want to make this really clear what we're talking about here. But maybe God's trying to empathize with him. I think the Lord is saying, I'm aware of the apparent contradictions. I'm aware that the promise goes through Isaac, your only son. I I know what's at stake and what I'm asking you to do. He also says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's the first time in the Bible that the word love is used. And I think God's saying, look, I know how you feel about the boy. I know what it is to have an only beloved son. And I think the way that God is empathizing with Abraham is cluing Abraham in. To see God is saying, look, I I know you. I know what I'm asking of you. I know how it feels. You can trust me. Now go. And look where he tells him to go. The land of Moriah. Now, when Israel would read this story, that would jump out to them. Because Moriah means God will provide or God will see to it. And so as they're reading this story, and by the way, they would see themselves in Isaac's shoes. Like they're the ones on the dock here. Uh, they would be much relieved because they can see, oh, God's going to provide. God's going to see to this. God's up to something. And here's the last clue, and I think this is the one more than any others. This is the one that, that helps Abraham respond in faith. And the clue is just the similarity between this call and the call where this whole story began in Genesis 12. The similarities are striking. In both cases, in both passages, God initiates... God is the one who comes to him. He's the one who calls him. In both cases, Abraham responds, here I am. In both cases, God says, go. And not just go. In both cases, he says, go to a place that I'm going to show you. Like, you don't even know where you're going. I'll tell you that later. In both cases, God essentially asks Abraham to give up his life. In Genesis 12, he's asked to leave his family his, his city where he grew up, his business connections, everything. He's got to leave it all just for a place that I'll show you later. He's giving up his whole life. And here in Genesis 22, he's asked to give up Isaac, which in Abraham's old age has become his whole life. And in both cases, Abraham went. He's been through this before. Abraham has a history with God. Like, if someone I don't really know that well came up to me and said, hey, we got to go right now. Come with me. we got to go. I'd be like, well, where are we going? No, no, we don't have time right now. Hold up. I, I wouldn't go anywhere until I got some questions answered, right? If Kendall came up to me and said, Walker, we got to go now. I'd be like, okay, let's go. Let's go. I don't know where we're going. Right? Because we have history. We've known each other for 16 years. Abraham and God have history. Trust is formed in the context of relational 
history. And Abraham has relational history with Yahweh. And so when God says, go, do this, do that, Abraham's like, okay, we got history. If God were to come to Abraham out of the blue and say, go sacrifice your son, Isaac, Abraham's like, what are you talking about? He'd be terrified. But God doesn't come out of the blue. God's been walking with Abraham all these years. And so when he comes and says, sacrifice your son, Isaac, Abraham's not terrified at all. God's only scary if you don't know him. When Jesus came, he told people, look, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross. You've got to lose your life. In fact, anybody who tries to hold on to his life will lose it in the end. But if you lose it for my sake, then you get life with me. And some people were terrified at that. You know, people who didn't know him. But to those who knew him, to those who dropped their nets and put their hand to the plow, never to look back, who left their families, they thought they'd come upon the greatest deal of the century. Wait, just give up my life, but I get life with you? Yes, I'm in. There's this uh, wonderful story in The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia books. And in this story, uh, Jill has come to this strange land called Narnia with her friend Eustace. It's her first time, and she gets separated, and she gets lost. And she finds herself uh, walking around. She's getting very thirsty, and she comes upon a stream, and But before she gets to the stream, she stops dead in her tracks. Lewis writes, Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had very good reason, because just on this side of the stream lay the lion. She thought, if I run away, it'll be after me in a moment. If I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved as she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion, and only she could get a drink of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken, and Then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper and wilder and stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It didn't make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? I mean... Would you mind going away while I do? Jill asked. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? Jill asked. I make no promises, said the lion. Well, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. 
and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. God tests his people. His commands can be difficult. Hardships, well, you know, can be hard. He may ask you to go in a direction without you knowing where it leads or what the outcomes will be. You may feel like that obeying a particular command would just be the hardest thing you have ever had to do. But it's to do you good. For there is no other stream. Abraham is all in. But saying you're going to do something and then doing it, seeing it through, we know that's a different thing, right? Faith is never just a one-time thing. It's always a journey. And so let's enter into Abraham's journey together. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, And so they went, both of them, together. This had to be an agonizing journey. It's bad enough to know you've got to do this thing that you absolutely don't want to do, but to drag it out like this, to be in your head for three solid days about this with all of the questions and the fears and the doubts, it just had to be agonizing. That's what a real journey does, right? It tests you physically, emotionally, spiritually, Journeys can be trying, but you know what else they are? They're clarifying. I've got a friend who uh, takes a group of men on trips. They're all kind of CEO types, and so he makes them unplug for a while, and they get into the wilderness somewhere just isolated. And he tells me that when you get these guys away, and they get isolated, and they get alone with their thoughts, they begin to get some perspective on life. They come away saying that they've gained so much clarity about what matters most to them. And I think Abraham's journey had to be clarifying in this way. As he considers what this is going to cost him to obey God, he's getting some perspective on what matters most. And it's not Isaac. Abraham loves Isaac, for sure, and that's a good thing. But I think the question is... Does he love Isaac more than God? Has he come to cherish Isaac more than God? Has he put his emotional center in Isaac rather than God? It's easy to do with kids, you know. Just talk to me after one of my kids' sporting events, and you'll see how out of whack my loves and emotions are. Look, there have been multiple occasions after a particularly tough loss where I didn't sleep that night. Right, let me remind you. We're talking about an elementary school child and a junior high child playing sports. Just some random place in Austin. We're not, this is not the Olympics. 
But at night, I will lay in bed and I will replay the plays and I will think through. I'm not even the coach. I'm just the dad watching. I'll replay it. If we had done this, if we, if next time we get, and I won't be able to sleep. I mean, that's embarrassing to say that out loud to you all. But it helps me realize, okay, I can see how Abraham would get there. That it wouldn't be hard to put his emotional center in his son. That how he could come to a place where he would cherish the gift more than the giver. The journey isn't punitive. It's purifying. God is stripping him and us of our lesser loves so that we might come to love him the most. Because true life, true joy, and a good night's sleep is found in God alone. Like, if my kids won every game from here on out and won every championship and were the MVP in every single one of them, well, that would be cool. I mean, that would be pretty awesome. But apart from that, it wouldn't be life. It wouldn't be true satisfaction and joy, not to me and not to them. It would always leave you thirsty. Success, power, attention, approval, recognition, status, all of that. To enjoy any of those things, they have to be second place to God. Because only in God is there true joy in life. Your best, your best life is not getting what you want. I mean, unless what you want is God. Abraham journeyed for three days, and then in verse 4, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. So they're kind of at base camp. And he tells the young man to stay with the donkey, and then he says this strange thing. He says, I and the boy are going to go up, we're going to worship, and we're going to come again down to you. And so Isaac carries the wood, and Abraham gets the knife and the fire, and they, they ascend the hill together. How can he say, we'll come again to you? Like, how at this point in the journey can Abraham have real hope of that? And the reason I call it hope is because, you know, Hebrews 11, which is the great chapter on faith, defines faith that way. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. How can Abraham have hope in a time like this? It happens again in the next few verses, starting uh, verse 6. Out of the silence, Isaac speaks. This is the only time Isaac talks in Genesis, well, to his dad that I'm aware of. Uh, He says this, hey, dad, yeah, son? Okay, I've just been thinking. We got wood, we got fire, we got a knife. Where's the lamb? Right? Isaac's like a teenager by this time. So he's done this before with dad. They've offered up burnt offerings before he knows how, to, how it goes. You've got to have wood, fire, a knife, and a lamb. Dad, where's the lamb? And look, just in the realm of like literature, this is tragic irony at its absolute best. Look how Abram answers him. He's clever. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Again, how can he say this? How can he have hope as his son is innocently asking, Dad, where's the lamb? 
Here's what, here's what I think. I think Abraham can have hope because his journey has brought him to the end of himself. There have been plenty of times where Abraham has tried to take matters into his own hands, tried to figure it out for himself, tell God how we're going to do things, and he has seen how that goes. It doesn't go well. And I think he is now to the place when he realized, I got nothing. All I got is God. And that's what matters the most. See, uh, when Abraham tells Isaac, God will provide for himself a lamb, my son, he's basically saying, I don't really know how to answer your question, Isaac, but God does. Abraham is not walking up this mountain with his son by sheer determination, by willpower. He's walking up this mountain by faith. The mountain's not called Abraham will obey. The mountain is called God will provide. And that's how he gets up the mountain. When you come to the end of yourself, the end of your self-reliance, the end of your selfish ambition, and all that you've got left is God, then you will come to realize that you have got the one thing that matters most. I used to lead a Bible study in the SAE house over at the University of Texas, and you know, what these guys are concerned about the most is their reputation. People thinking they're cool, that they've got it together, that they're just good dudes. That's their highest functional love. And so one day I just asked them, hey, what if all of your junk, like just everything that you think and do, what if that was, you know, published in the Daily Texan every day? They're like, no, that would be terrible. So yeah, obviously that would be terrible, but why? Why would that be so bad? They're like, well, because everyone would know all my stuff, and I just kept pressing it. Okay, but so why would that be so bad? And we went through lots of rounds of this question until finally one of them said, I would have nothing left. And I said, okay, Robert, then what would you have? And he knew. He's like, well, I guess then I would just have Jesus. And I said, okay, if you can get to that point, then you'll have found what matters most. Hebrews 11 said that Abraham went on this journey, that he was willing to give up his life because he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder and architect was God. Right? This world doesn't have any foundations. People thinking you're cool, getting enough money, having a great family, having security for retirement, none of that is a true foundation. It's all built on sand. Abraham goes on this journey because he knows that. So he's looking for foundations. A city built by God. I was talking with someone this week, and um, they are going through a a journey for sure. Hardship. Really difficult stuff. And I was just listening to them tell the story, and, and they said, you know, at the beginning of this, I, my hope was in you know, getting my normal life back. Uh, My hope was in not feeling ashamed or embarrassed in front of people. My hope was in God doing something miraculous in this situation. And then they said, but you know what? Now, I don't even care about any of that. Now, I've got a relationship with God. It's good. I know him. I know he's with me. And that's really all I care about. Have you come to the end of yourself? 
Are you still looking for something in this world to give you something to stand on, some foundation? Or have you come to see that God is the only foundation? That's what the journey's about. Let's look at the last scene, the altar. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's going to do it. Like all this talk of hope wasn't just wishing He's really going to do it. We know that because in verse 12, God says, okay, you were really going to do that, man. Having told the men that he would return again with Isaac, having told his son Isaac, God's up to something he's going to provide here, having done all that, he is really going to go through with this. How? How in a moment like this, knife in hand, does Abraham have hope. You know, when Jesus was bound on the cross, and when he cried out to the Father, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Nobody could could understand it. None of his followers could grasp what was happening, because how could the promised Savior be put to death? They just couldn't see how God could provide even in death. But Abraham can see it. Abraham believes that even in death, God will provide. Hebrews 11 tells us as much. Hebrews 11 says he offered up his son Isaac. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. Abraham believes in resurrection. He believes that God will do something. He has history with God. He has seen God's grace and mercy and power in his life. And so, you know, as one pastor says, Abraham has this spirit-filled imagination that gives him hope. He looks at the situation and he says, I don't see it, but there must be some, some third way, something that I have not considered ever before. God must see to it. He must provide. It's not vain hope. It's not bumper sticker faith. It's reasoned. It's considered. It's based on the character of God and what God has done in the past. Abraham thought, if the son of promise dies, then God will raise him from the dead. And in that moment, God intervenes, verse 11, knife in hand. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And it was like the quickest, most relieving here I am in the history of here I am's. He said, no, 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 don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes 
and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I love this phrase, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and saw. That's actually a phrase that gets repeated several times throughout Abraham's story. And I think the use of it is to help us see something. I think the, the story itself, the scripture, or God is showing us or his people what to look for. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the land. He lifted up his eyes and saw God and the two angels coming to him, to his tent. This is when God promised Sarah that she would have a son. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw Mount Moriah from afar. Incidentally, Mount Moriah is where the temple would be built, where Jesus would be crucified. And now Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees a ram. God is teaching his people what to look for. They're to look for a son, a promised son who would be born against impossible odds. Uh, When salvation history takes place, they are to expect that that child of promise will be carrying the wood of his own sacrifice as Isaac carried the wood up the hill. And that he will be ascending the hills of Moriah. And that he will be offered up by his father. And that when that happens, the people will say, God has provided. But when he comes, God's son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loves. When he comes, there won't be a ram caught in the thorns. In fact, he will take the thorns and put them upon his brow. He will offer himself up as the Lamb of God so that we may live. If you're going to find yourself in this story, you you could find yourself in several places. You might look at Abraham and say, man, how, how do I have faith like that? But where Israel saw themselves in the story and maybe where we should see ourselves is Isaac because we're the ones who deserve to die. This is what Paul is saying in Romans. The wages of sin is death. God righteously requires a sacrifice for sin, and the the sacrifice is death. This is where we belong. We belong on the altar. We're the ones asking, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? I don't want it to be me. That's why it's so powerful when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist sees him and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is biblical faith, that we would take our eyes off ourselves and look upon him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The story just can't be understood apart from Jesus. If we're to understand Abraham's faith at all, we have to understand the nature of his faith. And his faith was that if the son dies, God will raise him from the dead. And how do you respond to that? Well, we've already done it. We sang it. Let me just close with this. 
Here's two ways to respond. Uh, We sang a song, I Boast No More. And the last lyric is this, the best obedience of my hands dare not appear before thy throne. Meaning, don't leave here thinking, okay, my job is is to obey like Abraham. God is after that in your life, but that's not the primary thought because your best obedience dare not appear at his throne. But faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. And then right after that, we sing, to God and to the Lamb I will sing. To God and to the Lamb I will sing. While millions join the theme, because it is through this Lamb that the nations will be blessed, while millions join the theme, I will sing. While millions join the theme, I will sing. How high, how wide, how deep is your love. Oh, my soul, set on fire by your wondrous love for us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.